Okay, I think we'll, we'll, we'll start. Um, good evening, uh, history lovers, and welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School. And uh, I'm your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland magazine. Uh, now, I just want to thank a, a few uh, people uh, before we get started. First of all, the Defence Forces for hosting us here in the officers' mess in uh, costume barracks, and Captain Kevin Diffley in particular. Uh, also, the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Culture, uh, Heritage and the Grail Talks. Thank God they shortened it. Um, <coughs> we have to thank them for their support and also the Old Loan Society and its president Ian Keneally and I, I see a few stalwarts uh, Harman Murta had an article in the very first issue of History Ireland sorry to remind you of that <laughs> <laughs> uh, now um, tonight we're looking at uh, John Redmond his life and legacy this month uh, 6th of March to be precise marks the centenary of the death of John Redmond leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party which had dominated party political life since the heyday of Parnell in the 1880s. Yet by the year's end, it would all be wiped out by Sinn Féin in the general election uh, in December. Now, was that inevitable? To what extent was Redmond responsible? Or was it due to circumstances beyond his control? Is it fair in hindsight to judge Redmond on the final few years of a long and eventful career? And was the treaty settlement of 1921 to a large degree home rule for slow learners in any case? So to discuss this and related questions, uh, we have uh, on my right, Dermot Malidi, who's uh, Redmond's uh, biographer. And you know the book coming out tomorrow, Dermot? Yeah. Uh, guys will give it a plug now. Book of his, his correspondence, Selected Letters on Memoranda, covering his whole life. Uh, and that'll be launched by John Redmond, or by, not by, by John Redmond, John <laughs> Bruton. I, I just done an Albert on it there. Uh, uh, John Bruton will be launching that book uh, tomorrow evening. And then to, to Dermot's right, um, at, at short notice, uh, we have Martin O'Donoghue, uh, who currently works in the National Library. Of course, this, uh, this uh, hedge school almost fell foul of the beast, you know, it was meant to happen two weeks ago. So we've had to shuffle the deck here slightly. And then on my left, uh, Brian Hanley uh, of Edinburgh University. Now, uh, Margaret O'Callaghan was also meant to be on the panel, but unfortunately uh, she, she couldn't make it, but she, she sends her, her best wishes. Now, Dermot, you're the, you're the the, the foremost biographer uh, of, uh, of Redmond. Uh, talk a little bit about his background, because I, I suspect many of the audience here won't know too much about, you know, he was born in, in uh, what is it, 18, 1856? 1856. By a substantial political family. Yeah, they had been in Wexford politics, Wexford County politics for uh, uh, quite a while. His, his father was the first Home Rule MP elected in Ireland. Uh, he was a close colleague of Isaac Butt, and he was elected for uh, Wexford Borough in in a by-election in 1872, and then he was re-elected in the general election of 1874. And but Redmond also had a, a grand uncle before that in the 18 uh, from 1859 to 65, who was a Liberal MP um, at Westminster. And he was, he was more famous as a benefactor of Wexford than as a politician. He didn't speak very much in the House of Commons, but he put a huge amount of money into reclaiming the marshlands uh, around Wexford Harbour, built up the harbour, deepened it, and also brought the railway to Wexford Town. So he's, uh, uh, um, there's a monument to him in uh, Wexford Town. That's the original Redmond monument. The names of the other later Redmonds are now affixed to that monument. So that, uh, that brings us down to John himself. Uh, the money was, they, uh, um, they were a wealthy family early in the 19th century, but the money was disappearing as the century went on. So Redmond, they, they, 
they didn't actually ever own any of the houses they lived in, they rented. But nevertheless, it, uh, it, it can be accurately said of John Redmond that he came from a, an old Catholic gentry Wexford family. Now, did that uh, have a big um, effect on his political personality? Um, I don't think it did, really. It, it, it mattered in two ways. Uh, number one, when he joined the party as a young man, he was 24 years old, first elected uh, to the borough of New Ross. Um, so um, the leader of the, of the Irish Parliamentary Party at that point was, um, was Charles Stuart Parnell since the previous year. Parnell, uh, there was a new type of MP beginning to gather around, um, um, uh, around Parnell. They were young, they were relatively rootless, the, uh, rootless in the sense of not being located in one particular part of the country. They were willing to go wherever Parnell would send them. And they were very talented guys. They, um, I, I'm talking about the most um, best known of them would be Tim Healy, um, also William O'Brien, uh, John Dillon. Now, Redmond was a little bit different from those because his, he had this sense of place which the others didn't have. He would, he would say to Parnell that he was willing to go wherever Parnell sent him. Um, but he actually lobbied to be uh, given the seat for Wexford Borough, which his father had held. So he had this sense of you know, family tradition and locality. So that was one thing that made him uh, different from some of his colleagues. Um, it didn't make a huge difference to the policies that he adopted later on. So he wasn't, but, so he wasn't parachuted anywhere. No, he wasn't parachuted. <laughs> like some of the other tends, tends to be. Yeah, some of the other guys would, um, would actually stand for, for two or maybe even three constituencies and um, go wherever they were sent. Uh, and were very close to um, Parnell in a kind of a, you know, a, 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 a electoral strategy kind of group. But the other way that uh, Redmond's origins made him a little bit different was he did have um, a lot of um, uh, contact, uh, social contacts among the landed class. And it made him, uh, when the Land League um, got going, Redmond did not uh, appear as a natural land agitator, a, a natural agrarian did the, did the agitator. Land, did the, were they landowners themselves, the term? Just to clarify he, that. Um, you say that they, they rented the houses they lived in, but yeah. did, did they own Redmond initially does, land? Uh, they owned some houses in Wexford Town, and they drew rent from them. They didn't own estates of land. Uh, at least uh, Red, uh, John Redmond's own uh, you know, line of the family didn't own that. Now, however, he did have a grand, he did have an uncle who, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Redmond, who was in the British Army, and when he died, he left John Redmond an estate um, in uh, a parts of South County Wexford, and that became a bit of an embarrassment for Redmond because he inherited them in 1902 at the very moment when <coughs> the Land Act, the Wyndham Land Act, was about to come on stream, and that caused political difficulties for Redmond. I mean, Redmond didn't, didn't want to keep it. He sold it off as quickly as he could. But uh, his enemies made use of the prices. I was going to be, yeah, Martin, I'll bring you in there because um, how substantial were these, these southeastern connections? Because I think um, Dermot's raised an interesting, an interesting point here, which we may not get back to later. So I just want to talk yes. about this now is the location of, of a, a loyalty to Redmond in the southeast. I mean, how long did that endure? Well, it endured quite some time. On one sense, it endured until 1952, which is when Bridget Redmond, his daughter in law, dies. Um, but in a sense, it actually went a lot longer than that, because even after that, Thady Lynch is a, is a Fine Gael TD who had the support of Ballybrick and Pig Buyers in Waterford City. 
And even Eddie Collins famously was drawing on Redmond support, and that's recounted in Gareth Fitzgerald's uh, autobiography. So it's a quite a long line of support. And that Redmond's-Waterford connection dates back to the Parnell split and the by-election of Waterford City in 1891. So whereas there's a family connection far, uh, before that in Wexford, in Waterford it dates back to the Parnell split, where he wins a really hotly contested, and I think that might be a mild way of saying it, by-election against Michael Davitt in 1891. And from that point on, John Redmond is the MP up until his death in 1918. And he has a sturdy support base, which is made up of Ballybrick and pig buyers, who are the, the middlemen, really, in the bacon industry, which is central to the economic life of Waterford City. And a team of dedicated activists, because Redmond rarely visits Waterford City, maybe once a year or so. And he's, he has that in common with other MPs, and Dermot's referred to that there. But Redmond, he still, there was still an essence of constituency brokerage. And the historian James McConnell has shown this as well with Redmond and with other Home Rule MPs, but not in the way that we would understand it. It wasn't somebody who was holding clinics every Saturday and living in the village. So there was a team of activists on the ground and a lot of the councillors, even in the 1920s, councillors on Waterford City Council would have been denoted as a Redmondite faction. No, so I, it went far beyond and there was a personal loyalty bound up in, as I say, the bacon industry and, and what Redmond was able to do for that area. No, is that, what I find interesting about this is you often get uh, remarked about Redmond that he lost touch, he was out of touch, he was in Westminster. And when I was doing a bit of background reading for this, I mean, he was in Westminster since he was a young man, like he was yeah. an assistant to, to his father. So he's in Westminster since the mm. 1870s, right? Yeah. At the same time, from what, you, what you two are saying, there's these substantial local mm. connections which are unique to Redmond compared to his, his peers within the, the, uh, the, the, the Irish Parliamentary Party. So he, he sort of straddles both worlds, if you like. Yeah. Brian, do you want to come in this one on the on the, the I know on the on the, the class background because Dermot seems to be saying that this isn't really a factor in his his later development. Do you go along with that? I mean, I don't. I think what's unusual about the Redmond Redmonds or relatively unusual about them is that it's probably easy to forget now. But the Irish Party, the Home Rule Party, even in Redmond's era were considered quite unique at Westminster before the arrival of British Labour. I mean, they were seen as poorer than the, the average British MP. They were seen as a bit more dangerous, you know, and left-wing than the average British parliamentarian. And in 1914, for example, when Redmond calls for support for the war effort, in Britain there's lots of MPs who were immediately called up because they'd all served in the British Army at some point. That's relatively rare in the Irish party. The Irish party had usually been quite uh, hostile to recruitment or had a distance. But the Redmond family are a bit different because, as Dermot has mentioned, they'd had a relative who was an officer, but also William Redmond, his brother, had, I think, at, at one point been in the military. So that is a little bit different than a lot of his other contemporaries. But I think, I suppose, in, in terms of... It can seem like an extremely respectable character when you talk about you know, Catholic gentry and all the rest, but Redmond had been in jail. Being in jail was a prerequisite for a Home Rule MP. So even though he wasn't a natural land agitator, he still got arrested and locked up for land mm, agitation. Mm, yeah. And as no doubt we'll see, um, into the 1890s and the early 1900s, he campaigned very vigorously for political prisoners in British jails. So yes, I think his background is important in terms of, of, of to some extent, but also there are other tr trends within home rule that he, he fits into as well. Now, I, I, I want to go, I want to go on to the Parnell's bit in a minute, but before I do, Darren, I just want to go back to you on the Wexford thing. I mean, you can't talk about Wexford without talking about uh, 70-98, right? I mean, are there 98 connections there? I know that there was some story of some female relative. There was a legend that, that he had... Of so a, it's too good to be uh, true, though. Of, of a Miss Redmond <laughs> riding on a white horse. With, 
and waving a sword in the air and, call, and, and calling for her followers to charge. I think that's pure myth, really. Um, the uh, closer to reality is the fact that his, let's see, great-great-grandfather, his grandfather's grandfather, Walter Redmond, the man who bought the house where Redmond was raised, at Bally Trent House, down at the extreme southeast tip of County Wexford, that Walter Redmond was in the Yeomanry in 1798. Uh, it, it was quite common for Catholic uh, gentry to be in the Yeomanry in 1798. Uh, so I, I, I suspect that the other, the myth of the other side of the Miss Redmond leading rebels was probably concocted to create a counterbalance against, by, by some followers maybe, you know, to kind of uh, uh, airbrush the family reputation, if you like. Yeah. Now, just on that then, in, in 1898, you had the centenary of the, the Rising, and of course people like um, Maud Gaughan, James Connolly, and this scene is one of those, those uh, episodes that, that re revives you know, what's called advanced nationalism. I mean, what, what was Redmond's take on that? Redmond's take on 1798 was very much taken from a priest called Father Patrick Kavanagh, who, who was actually a personal friend of Redmond's and lived in County Wexford. And Patrick Kavanagh's book was uh, more or less based on the, the narrative that the, peasant, the, the rebels who rose in 1798 in Wexford were driven to it by unbearable provocations, if you like, by the, uh, by the yeomanry and by the, um, the British army. So it, what, he, didn't ha, um, he, didn't, he, um, he didn't go along with the sort of mo the more modern narrative that we experienced here in the bicentennial celebrations of 98, that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, there was a proactive element to the rebellion in 98. Um, he saw it as really a reactive a response to, provo to unbearable provocation. Um, and uh, he, t he took that line more or less from... But did he, did he, was he involved in the, uh, the, the centenary commemorations? Oh, he was very much. In fact, yeah. he, he preempted all the other, all his competitors. At this time, in the, late, in the late 1890s, the Parnell split had been going on for seven years, and his rivals in the anti-Parnell, I mean, Redmond was the leader of the Parnellite faction, and he had two rivals in, and not one, because the anti-Parnellites were split among themselves. So there were three leaders, if you like, in that split, all um, competing. And Redmond's, um, Redmond stole a march on the others by going off and giving a lecture in New York um, at the end of 1790, or of 90, sorry, of 1897, just before the centennial year began. And uh, this, was, this speech was commented on widely. It was re uh, widely reported back in Ireland. And John Devoy, the Republican leader of uh, the um, Clan na Gael leader in New York, uh, gave his approval to this speech. So Redmond was then regarded as, uh, as a natural to be um, included in the, in the actual meetings in Ireland later on in 1898. So he took a full part in that. Does, it, does this bear out Brian's point that there, there, there is a slight whiff of sulphur then off Redmond, you know, that, that we might forget about, given he, because he's, he's seen in retrospect all, always yeah, at the concern. end of his life. Uh, Would you yeah. go along with that, Brian? I mean, that, that, he's, that the, the parliamentary party, the, the constitutionalists, they're not totally constitutional, are they? In their they're, they're not constitutional at all because Irish nationalists didn't regard the act of union, uh, in, in Redmond's world, uh, words, as having any binding moral or legal force. They believed it had been forced on Ireland through coercion and through trickery. So the constitutional politicians in Ireland in the 1890s were the unionists. 
They believed in the Constitution. The Home Rule Party didn't. The Home Rule Party believed in ending the Act of Union. I think we retrospectively sometimes when we look at Redmond, um, there's a real tendency to try and see him. as a, you, you, you made the mistake at the start. You know, you said John Redmond's going to launch the book. <laughs> the politics of John Bruton are not actually the politics of John Redmond, no matter how much John Bruton might like to think they are. Because John Redmond in the 1890s is part of a movement that perhaps a quarter of its MPs are former Fenians, who are proud to have been Fenians. And Redmond says on numerous occasions, as do many of the leaders of the Home Rule Party, we have no moral problem with rising up against the British in 98 and 67 and so on. The only problem is that force will not work against the most powerful empire in the world. But that empire came into Ireland through coercion. It has no legal basis here. We don't regard British rule you know, as legitimate. I mean, Redmond gives you know, all, a lot of speeches to that effect. But, he all, but what they also say is that the people who do take up arms like Tom Clark, for example. Redmond visits Tom Clark six or seven times in prison. When Clark is released, the uh, greeting home meeting is chaired by William Redmond. And Clark singles out John Redmond as a man who was steadfast in his support for him. And what John Redmond says is, these men are in prison. I might disagree with their methods, but I can't disagree with their objectives. And in another time, in another time or place, we might all have had to take those methods. So the idea that there's a constitutional Irish party that believes in a peaceful road in moral terms, I think is wrong. They believe in peaceful agitation because they don't think violence works. So it's but pragma pragmatic. It's pragmatic. Yeah. And, and they certainly would be regarded, if you look at the speeches Redmond makes about the Fenian prisoners and about Clark and so on, that would be regarded as, as sneaking regardism now. I mean, he's mm. constantly saying mm. how great these guys are and how honourable they are and how the British have treated them appallingly. And, and it's, it's, you know, reciprocated. As late as 1912, Tom Clark says, you know, I disagree with John Redmond. I think he's gone down the wrong road. But I can't say he's, he's, a, he's not an honourable man. You know, he, he believes in what he's doing. Mm. Let's not... Can I... OK, sorry, but... I was going to say, even in 1910, Willie Redmond, who's even more given to fiery speeches than his brother John, is saying, we still honour the men of 98, 48 and 67, and they draw a line of succession from that down to the Third Home Rule Bill, which is obviously not how other nationalists would have seen it. But they don't see any disjuncture there. So they still honour violence, just not in the here and now in terms of the tactics that they're going to pursue, so. Yep. Um, could I just qualify in, in one respect what Brian said there? They, we have to remember that, that although the constitutionalists were drawing closer to the Fenians in the 1890s, the Fenians themselves were also, they were in a, a very quiescent phase. They were not, um, they had uh, accepted the failure of 1867. Some of their spokespeople, like John O'Leary, who was the, uh, one of, uh, on the Supreme Council of the IRB, was actually very, uh, uh, he was completely opposed to the methods which had landed Tom Clark and other prisoners in jail, the terrorist methods of dynamiting in London and so on. He was completely opposed to that. John, uh, John O'Leary had this very noble vision that we have to wait until the Irish people are with us to launch a grand rebellion. So he saw the future rebellion as being a reenactment of 1798 on a national, on an island-wide <laughs> scale. So there is that thing that the Fenians themselves were not the same as they had been. They were, maybe they were just aging, but they were also moving away from, and becoming pragmatic as well. And, uh, willing to admit that the old methods hadn't worked. Just want to get, want to get on to, to, to Parnell now, the, the split, because Parnell, of course, uh, after the split, when he was on the defensive, 
uh, associate himself with the, the hillside men, as he, he referred to them. Uh, can we assume that if you were a Parnellite, like Redmond, that you were a more advanced nationalist? Is that a correct assumption to make? Uh, or is it all about personality? Well, they found themselves in the same space, I suppose, as Fenians because of the fact that Parnell had appealed to the hillside men. So then people like Red Redmond was in a... He was leader of a minority in the 1890s. They'd often how, how many MPs, roughly? Usually... Nine. Yeah, nine. Oh, really? Very yeah. small. Not, yeah, in single first, figures, yeah. whereas you're talking about 70, maybe, or approximately, anti-Parnellite MPs. So he's leader of a smaller political faction. So John Redmond and Willie Redmond and other Parnellites find themselves bedfellows effectively with the people who are running the Irish Daily Independent and Fred Allen and people on that Fenian mm. spectrum. So there is, there is a certain amount of cooperation there because of Parnell's late appeal to the hillside men. But they're on the periphery anyway at that stage. Mm. And in, in some ways, the, I think Matthew Kelly has talked about an alternative to political action. That right. They're in this smaller group that's really been beaten in elections and they're, they're defending um, the the traditions of nationalism, but there are very little space to move when they come to Parliament because they're, he's, I mean, Redmond's leading I mean, a small rump of the I'm correct in saying the Parnellites par par more often than not will lose elections rather than win them, mm. right? Yeah. Now, if that's the case, how does he manage to, this reverse takeover then of the Irish Parliamentary Party? Like the, the party's reunited under Redmond. I think it's because he, he, was, uh, he was the one, uh, of all the leaders of the different factions in the split, he was the one who had insulted the least number of other leaders <laughs> or used the least insulting language. The others... Does, uh, this, does uh, this mean his charisma deficit was an advantage then? I mean, because it, you could the, say that, yeah. yeah he, he was... He always he was he always um, tried to keep a fairly high tone, like a, you know, um, make his criticism purely political. Now he did attack John Dillon, and there, um, he attacked him in a fairly personal way. He used to call him the the something humbug, the, uh, the miserable humbug, or something like that. But uh, but in, but like that was mild language um, compared to the kind of stuff that Tim Healy was using about uh, Parnellites and Parnell himself in the early stages. Um, that kind of very bitter, acrimonious rhetoric, um, Redmond avoided that. And I think at the end, because, I mean, a part of the reason why Redmond was elected was also be, because of that very split that had become so bitter within the anti-Parnellites, because within that majority section, I mean, and they were the ones with 72 seats in Parliament, eight times as many seats, four times the vote of the Parnellites um, throughout the 1890s. But... Um, Redmond, uh, or, uh, sorry, the split within the anti-Parnellites had become, by the end of the 90s, far more bitter than the original Parnell versus anti-Parnell split. And uh, Tim Healy and John Dillon were literally at daggers drawn, not literally at daggers drawn, but not far short of it. And that hatred between Dillon and uh, Healy was the one thing that lasted right up they, to 1918. They were on the same side. They were on the same side originally in, yeah. in attacking yeah. Parnell, but... Uh, uh, Dylan always kind of um, attacked Parnell sorrowfully and you know regretfully and hated doing it, whereas Healy kind of relishing. gave the impression of really relishing it and uh, used the most. I mean, uh, uh, Healy's way of attacking opponent um, of attacking opponents was always to impute the most base motive. So if he could find a money element anywhere, he would use that against his enemies. So that got they, the row between Healy and, and Dylan erupted at first over management of the Freeman's Journal newspaper, and it went from there to all kinds of other uh, issues. And uh, by the end of the 1890s, really, most uh, anti-Parnellites were willing to, they saw Redmond as a benign figure compared to 
either of the two anti-Parnellite factions' leaders. So Redmond got, by, uh, um, got in on that strength. By the way, it should, it should be remarked, I mean, that Redmond, regardless of what you think of him politically, was, was a man of the highest probity. I mean, there's, there's no hint of any... Oh, yeah. I mean, Parnell, on the other hand, did he not take a, a 10,000 bribe from Cecil Rhodes or no. donation, mm. right? Uh, well, according to an article, history, yeah, according article, to article history. for political purposes um, only. No, but I, I just think that should be said. Like that, he, he, there's never, you know, there's never been any hint of any impropriety on on, on Redmond's part. Yeah. So, uh, what sort of a machine then was the Irish Parliamentary Party, uh, uh, Martin? You know, post post unification, or was it was it a unification, or was it just a, a you know, a kind of a collection of of, of yeah, you know, individual fiefdoms? <clears throat> No, it, it was it was an organisation. It was a powerful organisation. But you're right to say that there is a shadow of the split remains over the party, and that's in some ways. Redmond is more a, ch a chairman than a chief, and in many ways, he's an effective leader for that reason because he's able to balance maybe some of these factions. Now, ultimately, Tim Healy and William O'Brien leave the party because of personality and policy differences, but he's able to be a chairman of this almost. You could see it maybe in some ways like a municipal government or an umbrella. Party, all parties are broad churches, but that's particularly true of the Irish party. It doesn't have party branches around the country like we understand Fianna Fáil, Cumann or Fine Gael branches. But what it has is it has the United Irish League, which is originally founded by William O'Brien as an agrarian organisation to campaign for um, greater land reform, particularly in the West. But the Irish party managed to take control of that and turn it into a kind of a constituency organisation. But its primary motor is land. When the First World War comes and land legislation is brought to a halt, the UIL is left without a purpose. Then in Ulster, where the UIL had less teeth, you have the Ancient Order of Hibernians, which is a Catholic fraternal body. The main mover in getting this into the Irish party system in, in one way is the Belfast MP, Joe Devlin. So that's open to Catholics, Irish-born or of Irish descent. So the that Herber takes on there, a greater right? significance as time goes Sorry, I'm just cutting across you there, but the Hibernians have their origins in ribbonism, right? Mm -hmm. You know, again, more than less than slightly constitutional yeah. in their outlook. Um, yeah. So again, you have this, this, this ambiguous, fuzzy sort of picture here on this, on this question. I mean, and also, presumably the Hibernians were not above strong-arm tactics either. No, they were, they were by, not by any means. So this is where you have, as I say, this kind of idea of it as being an umbrella group. Because on the one hand, you have strict constitutionalism. You have people like Thomas Kettle, who is more liberal, enlightened, and believes in Europeanism. But some accounts reference that he's a member of the AOH at one point. Because once the AOH becomes part of the organisation, along with the UIL, in many areas, there's no opposition to the Irish party. There are no elections held in many areas in many election times in the early 1900s. And you have selection conventions, which effectively determine who the MP is going to be. And you've got votes for UIL members, votes for AOH members, votes for local clergy, and then perhaps other bodies, such as town tenants bodies or the Irish National Foresters. So they wield enormous influence. And the AOH does have its roots in ribbonism. Its history is somewhat disputed, in fact, among historians. But it does have its roots in ribbonism, in Ulster, in North Leinster. And really, Devlin sees the potential of the AOH in the United States, applies it to Ireland, and seeks to take control of the AOH. So towards the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, there's actually splits in Hibernianism between Hibernians who are quite a bit more advanced nationalist and then those that Joe Devlin and John Dillon Nugent, who later becomes an MP, aspire to make the OH a little bit more respectable and a home rule supporting organisation. But even at that, it has a fearsome reputation. Sean T. O'Kelly talks about fighting off AOH men in Dublin. 
William O'Brien, when he's driven out of the party, he's driven out at a convention that's called the Batten Convention. So when you're a convention called the Batten Convention, you don't need pictures to tell that AOH men are attacking O'Brien from the speaker stage. And during the Home Rule crisis, the OH are notorious among unionist opponents because of the Castle Dawson incident, where children are attacked coming back from a Sunday school. So the OH is a big part of the unionist critique of Home Rule as Rome Rule. So they see this idea that Protestants will be denied rights under Home Rule, and the AOH is real bogeyman for them. So it's a bogeyman for both Sinn Féin and advanced nationalists, but also for unionists. OK, let, let's move on to the Home Rule here, the, the third Home Rule Bill of uh, 1910. Now, one of the things about this is, it's, it, this is a pale shadow of the original, the first Home Rule Bill of 1886, is it not? So like, how, how does it differ, Dermot, from the, the, the original bill? I don't think it is a pale shadow. I, it, it, was di it differed in some details, but I mean, it, the overall range of the bill was much the same. It was, a, um, it was aimed at setting up an executive, um, sorry, a, a, a parliament in Dublin with an executive responsible to that parliament. Um, the, only, the, the main differences tended to be about the financial powers of the bills. Um, the, f the, the first bill had never got, in, never got beyond the second reading anyway, so we don't know, what, uh, you know how it might have been modified in committee. The third bill was modified in committee because it got, uh, obviously, further. It got all the way to the statute book. Um, but um, the uh, financial provisions tended to be that in the first few years, they, um, you could regard them as humiliating provisions to Ireland in the first few years because the British were, they, for the few years leading up to 1912, the uh, uh, British exchequer spending on Ireland had for the first time been greater than the revenue that they were taking out of Ireland. So there was a deficit in the British exchequer and they were anxious to, that the, the home rule, that when home rule came into effect in Ireland, it, it, it would uh, wipe out that deficit. So they didn't know how long that would take, but minimum of three years maybe. So during those three years, there would be a fairly tight control on the amount of money allocated to the home rule executive in Dublin. Uh, as the deficit was wiped out then, the home rule government would get more, more financial powers. So you could see that as you know, humiliating in, um, to a certain extent. Um, it was worse before the bill was introduced. Redmond uh, had to fight the Treasury um, in February and March, just before the bill was introduced in April, to get some of the really bad clauses taken out. Now, Brian, I want to go on to you, because regardless of the detail of the, the Home Rule Bill, how was it represented to the electorate? How was it sold? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the key thing is, again, this is the, the culture of the Ireland that, the, that Redmond and the Irish Party operated in. And it, it's important to remember, I suppose, again, it can seem, because Home Rule can seem so limited or so moderate, in Britain, for a lot of people, this was devastating. This was seen as, you know, the, the cracks that could break the empire. So in British terms, it's seen as absolutely dramatic stuff. In Ireland, on the ground... Um, I think one, a Republican, Lawrence Nugent, said, home rule meant to the ordinary citizen freedom for Ireland without any qualifications. When Redmond's deputy, John Dillon, is speaking at the huge rally in Dublin um, in 1912 to welcome the third home rule bill, and he's speaking, ironically speaking, at the Parnell Monument, I think, you know. Uh, but he says, we, are, we have undone and we're undoing the work of three centuries of confiscation. The holy soil of Ireland is passing back rapidly into the possession of the children of our race, and the work of Cromwell is nearly undone. Now, home rule was sold as a nation once again. 
the average person didn't think it was all going to be about the post office having a certain amount of leeway and, you know, financial clauses, and then we'd eventually get greater control over customs and excise. The average person thought Irish Catholics are getting back our country. And right. once we've got our own parliament in College Green, all 98 and all the stuff the Home Rule Party talked about, it'll be our turn next. And I think the huge expectations that Home Rule was throwing up would have been very, very difficult for the Home Rule Party to satisfy. And I think some, Martin has explained very well the coalition that Home Rule was, and there's already cracks kind of apparent in that before the Home Rule Bill. But to the average person, Home Rule meant freedom, a nation once again. That's what the Irish Party sang. Yeah. And, you know, in Britain, they were presented as dangerous radicals, as Fenians, essentially as defenders of terrorism. So in Westminster, very often, they tried their best to sound moderate. Not always, not during the Boer War, for example. Again, they tended to support Britain's enemies. Again, one of the radical things about 1914 is that for the first time, the Home Rule Party aren't supporting Britain's enemies, you know, or aren't, or aren't calling for it. Can I just add something to that? The, when John Dillon made that speech in O'Connell Street in 1912 about the work of three centuries being undone and uh, the work of Cromwell being reversed and so on, um, and the land of Ireland passing back to the owners. Um, I don't think he was actually referring there to the Home Rule Bill itself. He was referring to what had already been going on for nine years, which was the Wyndham Land Act. Well, and the Wyndham Land Act had been, su had been supplemented by the Birrell Land Act of 1909. So you had two land acts that were aimed at um, facilitating the purchase of the land by the t former tenants from the landlords. And that was actually a, a very, very important uh, bloodless revolution. I mean, uh, there were countries in Eastern Europe at that same time which were having very bloody uh, overthrows of, of the landed classes. Ireland actually, they, um, uh, by the time Dylan made that speech in 1912, the uh, percentage of Irish land, I think, had gone over 50 Somewhere between 50 and 60% of it had been transferred to the tenants by that time. And I think that's what Dylan was, was referring to. I, because there were no provisions in the Home Rule Bill per se to speed up or accelerate the transfer of land. That was already in progress for almost a decade before then. And it was going very well. And by the, by the time, by 1916, over 60% of the land had been transferred, and it kept going into the first years of the Free State. Now, let's move on to, to the, the, the Home Rule crisis, right? Um, because it's often been said that uh, Redmond underestimated the opposition of Ulster Unionists. But, like, he's hardly unique in that, is he? I mean, nationalist politicians right up to the present day have been making the same uh, mistake or make, you know, underestimated in the same way. So, I mean, Brian, how do, how, do you, how do you think he, how does he see the, the Ulster opposition? Again, I mean, I suppose there's, how representative Redmond is of his movement at various stages, I think, is, is an important question. Um, certainly by the end of his life, he's adopting a more conciliatory idea, reluctantly accepting that unionists might be able to opt out in certain areas for a certain number of years. But initially, there's within the, ironically enough, in 1909, the, the convention that, that Martin talked about, you had a faction of the Home Rule Party led by William O'Brien in Cork who believed in conciliation, who believed in talking to the Irish landlords and who believed in essentially negotiating with unionists. And Redmond and the rest of the Irish party ridiculed this. And they physically, you know, more or less forced them out of the party. And they lost large swathes of Cork at this point because of William O'Brien's organisation. 
uh, were much stronger there. And among a, a whole swathe of home rulers, there was a tendency to not believe the unionists were serious, to think that the Ulster volunteers were a farce that, again, without British backing, they'd collapse. Um, again, Dylan tends to have the harder line publicly on this. Dylan, you know, talks about, you know, when the Irish volunteers are formed um, or later on when the Home Rule Party comes to control them, uh, you know, that the Irish volunteers will win any fight with the Ulster volunteers anyway and that ultimately it's up to the British, you know, to, to push this thing through and when they do, the Unionist resistance will collapse. Some of the separatists, on the other hand, have a, quite, have a more sophisticated idea about you know, unionism than, than some of the so-called constitutionalists. But I think Redmond's view does change, although it changes pretty late. And he is probably taken aback by the ferocity of the response. But again, we have to, to look at that also in the context of British politics, because the, the Ulster crisis is a crisis within the United Kingdom. And it's driven very much by domestic British concerns as well. Um, and in, the, in Westminster, the Home Rulers, and particularly Redmond, make a whole series of concessions and compromises in order to try and get the Home Rule Bill. I mean, we haven't mentioned votes for women, for example. That's another anniversary. Mm. I mean, mm. you know, there are Home Rule MP, MPs who support suffrage, but Redmond comes out against it because he thinks it's a price too high to pay for losing Liberal support, you know. So, mm. Mm. Um, and in some ways, that's, Dylan is ideologically opposed to suffrage. He thinks that given the vote to women would be disastrous. Redmond doesn't seem to think that. Some suffragettes think Redmond actually may believe in their right to vote, but very cynically, he says, well, I'm not going to sacrifice home rule for that, so we'll see what happens later on. Mm. And I think we can, you know, you mentioned Redmond not being a, uh, corrupt and all the rest of it. It's wrong to, to, to sanitise the politics of the era, though. It was rough politics. It was violent. When, when William O'Brien and, and his colleagues are forced out of the, the convention, Redmond, you know, doesn't tell the Batten men from Belfast to back off. You know, people are actually killed in Irish elections you know, and, and, and Irish elections tend to be accompanied by violence. So all that's going on while the, the parliamentary stuff is going on as well. Actually, speaking of violence, I want to get on to the First World War. Before I do, I just want to remind everybody, um, I have to say this is the most comfortable uh, seating I've ever had at a head school, right? Which, which, which worries me deeply because you are at school here, guys. You're supposed to pay attention and participate in the discussion. So uh, I'm just giving a signal here. If anybody wants to, to put their hand up and make a contribution or ask a question, uh, you know, uh, please do so. But we'll continue with the chat up here. Um, now, First World War... Um, this is the thing, of course, that, that, that Redmond is, is most associated with. Can I just say, try, try one thing here, maybe, uh, Dermot, to you? I mean, Napoleon always said, when, when, in relation to his generals, you know, is he lucky? Um, I mean, was Redmond unlucky in the way the, the, the First World War panned out for him? Uh, he was unlucky, but I don't think it was because of the First World War. He was unlucky. Uh, or maybe not even unlucky. Uh, I mean, his, his big problem, the problem that I believe brought him down in the end, was not the First World War. I don't go along with the theory that the war went on too long and that, that he took a gamble on a short war and he lost on, on that. I don't go along with that. And I don't go along even with the idea that it was the rebellion of 1916 that, that, that brought him down. These things certainly uh, contributed in different ways to making life difficult for him and they may be accelerated his downfall, but um, it was the impasse over partition that, in my view, was what undid him. So I, I couldn't actually say that he was unlucky. I mean, the, the Ulster question was there. It, was, it had been there for, for a whole century, and he underestimated it. He miscalculated. Uh, he was in an extremely tight spot, uh, and uh, the, the, 
I mean, as, as Brian said, he, he changed his position uh, quite late. Um, in the autumn of 1913, he was denouncing the, uh, the very idea of leaving any counties of Ulster out of the Home Rule Settlement. He was, uh, he was calling it the mutilation of the Irish nation. And that was in October 1913. F uh, four months later, he's meeting Asquith and the situation has changed. Asquith is telling him the king is so concerned about civil conflict breaking out in Ireland that he's now uh, telling me that he may uh, recall ministers and, and thus trigger a general election. Now, the big fear for Redmond of a general election is that if a general election is held, uh, we have to remember that the Home Rule Bill had to go through in three consecutive sessions of Parliament. If, that's, if that um, a process was interrupted at any point, the whole thing was cancelled and had to go back to square one again. So if the, if the king was going to trigger a general election, um, that would destroy the first two years' progress of the Home Rule Bill and we'd be back at the start. So he feared that. So with that in mind, he agreed very reluctantly then to go along with this temporary partition where they would give each county in Ulster the power, they'd give each county a plebiscite of its own um, to decide whether it wanted to stay in or opt out of uh, home rule. And he went along with that. And, and it was only supposed to be temporary for a, for a period of six years. So he backed that offer of the government. Now, that was a big, you know, it was a big backtracking from calling it the mutilation of the well, Irish it nation. It wasn't a huge blunder, though, because he's, he's, he's agreeing to the partition of something that's not yet established. Like, he hasn't even got a, a, a bird in the hand. He's nothing. He has absolutely nothing. Yet he's making a concession. Well, he, and he's uh, getting nothing in return. Well, no, the, I mean, the, the, as, as understood at the time, the offer was that uh, all of our, that the Home Rule Bill would come into force at a certain date and all of Ireland would immediately be under the Parliament set up in Dublin, except for those counties that had voted themselves out uh, of Home Rule. And at the end of six years, those uh, counties would automatically come back in. They wouldn't have a choice. They would automatically come in. Now, that was the offer. Of course, Carson immediately rejected that as completely inadequate. He said that the six-year temporary um, period was like a stay of execution for, six, you know, a sentence of death with a six-year stay of execution. Um, Carson um, demanded a block of six counties to be excluded. Not, like, if the original plebiscite offer had gone ahead, it would have probably meant four counties. Tyrone and Fermanagh had slender nationalist majorities, and they uh, would have stayed under the Dublin Parliament. The city of Derry uh, was going to be treated as a county for the purposes of that, and the, um, Derry City would have come into Home Rule. That was under that offer. Uh, Carson rejected it, and um, uh, from then on, the basic unionist demand was six counties permanently, or at least indefinitely. So Redmond then had to cope with that. So as the, as the year went, as, the, as 1914 went on up to the summer, you had the volunteers the two sets of volunteers, the Ulster volunteers and the Nationalist uh, volunteers, uh, marching on the streets. Um, you know, a, more, a huge growth in the numbers and more arms coming in. And it looked more and more like a civil war brewing by July. And then they had the Buckingham Palace Conference. Nothing was agreed. And it was at that point then that Asquith said he was going to have to withdraw the six-year time limit. And Redmond agreed then that was Redmond's further concession, but it was it, it never that never became public because it, he never got to make the speech where he would make that offer. In other words, county plebiscites, four counties excluded, 
and but uh, stay out as long as you like, uh, come in when you're willing. That never got made public. And that was the situation, and that was the state of play when the First World War began. The First World War preempted any further discussion. Now, presumably, Redmond, like a lot of people, thought the war would be over by Christmas. Yeah. He was banking on a short war. Well, he wasn't really, you see, uh, when, the, um, when the act went on the statute book, there were two things, and there were two obstacles. It, uh, I mean, Redmond's own suggestion to suspend it, because setting up a parliament in the middle of a war didn't seem a very practical thing. And most people seemed to be willing. The nationalist opinion didn't object terribly strongly to the idea that the Home Rule Bill, once it was on the statute book, most people were happy. They didn't expect the parliament to be set up immediately during a war. So that was uncontroversial, but there was another obstacle waiting there, which was the unresolved Ulster question. There was no agreement on how many counties or how Ireland was to be partitioned. The principle of partition had been, uh, uh, um, had been um, conceded by Redmond, but nothing more. So whenever the, uh, whether the war ended up being a short war or a long war, the Ulster question was gonna be waiting there to be resolved at the end, and Redmond knew he would be standing up in Parliament in front of uh, British MPs, Liberal and Conservative MPs, and he would have to, um, and he would be arguing for his, if you like to borrow the language of Brexit, he'd be arguing for a soft partition, and Carson <laughs> would be arguing for a hard partition. And he had to do, uh, he had to um, take stances which would guarantee that he would um, um, cut a good figure when the war ended, whenever it ended, uh, cut a good figure in front of British public opinion. Martin, how did the war then affect Redmond and his political machine in Ireland? Yeah, well, Dermot's well explained how partition was going to be a problem in, in any case, but in saying that, the war itself was very damaging for the Irish party on a number of fronts. On the one sense, Redmond had stood aloof from the volunteer movement to begin with. So it was only in June 1914 that he managed to get his nominees put on to the Committee how, how of the Volunteers. Do do how, do, how do you get your nominees put on? I mean, you know, how does, how does that work like? How do you he, delivers, he delivers an ultimatum, more or less. And what's this his was threat, the, though? What, what, what like sanctions is he threatening? To set up his own volunteers. Yeah, it's the right. force of the okay. Irish Party. It's the Irish Party's appearance of, as David Patrick said, to does vampirise other organisations. Because the UIL is originally to, no, William no, O'Brien's creation. Sorry to interrupt you, Mark, again. Does this go back to a point Brian made, right? That, that, that we should see Redmond as the figurehead of the entire Irish nation, in a sense, Brian. Yeah, I think right? we should. You know, including all these different elements. And therefore, when he says jump, mm. you have Almost to jump. Mm. What's that? Almost all. Almost yeah. all. Okay, so he has, he has a stand well, that's beyond I mean, just his political party. Yeah. That's yeah. the point yes. I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he is, he's re in, in the language of the time, he's called the leader of the Irish people. He's called the leader of the okay. Irish nation. And, and the Home Rule movement, there are very few, you know, there's splinters from the Home Rule movement who are rivals, and there's new phenomenon like the unskilled trade unions who are outside the party. But almost everything else, including the Catholic Church, are involved in various ways, and they back different factions as well. Different bishops mm. have different favourites and so on. But it does encompass this huge nationalist movement that there's very mm. few mm. people outside. But one thing I would say is we, we, we can't overplay how... I don't think British rule had a great degree of legitimacy in nationalist Ireland anyway. I think people put up with it, essentially, and the rhetoric of the Home Rule Party reflected that. But from 1912 onwards, the support of the Conservative Party for a potential armed rebellion against the British Parliament itself destroys the legitimacy. I mean, the, the Corra Mutiny, 
the importation of arms into Ulster, the speeches of Boner Law and all the rest. I mean, people in Ireland are saying, the British Parliament are prepared to disregard all their own laws to have their own way. So mm. that's having a huge effect on, on ordinary perceptions, let alone what you know, Redmond is trying to juggle in, in Westminster. Yeah. And Martin? the key point is that the National Volunteers, Redmond's wing, although it's far greater in numbers at the start of the war than the Irish Volunteers, the Irish Volunteers, though smaller in numbers, stays well organised, obviously, throughout the war. Whereas the National Volunteers, around 40% of the National Volunteers are reservists, but they don't join up in huge numbers. And in actual fact, a lot of the people who do join up are from urban working class backgrounds. So you have a situation by 1916, where the recruiting meeting in the mansion house, Redmond is calling for a farmer's battalion. And he's actually getting angry with, with farmers for not enlisting. Now, the farmers are doing very well out of the war, but he's arguing it's the farming classes that have done well out of the Irish party. It's the farming yeah. par farmers that have done well out of home rule agitation. And they won't do any better under Prussian landowners than they are under British landowners. So the whole idea of the war turns turn in on Redmond and his rhetoric from 1914 on into the war. All the while, the United Irish League hasn't got a purpose at grassroots level because land, le land legislation is stopped. There's no general elections. There's no general election between 1910 and 1918. So for a political party, if there's no general election to fight, and for the United Irish League, if there's no land legislation to drive through, the party starts to diminish and it, it doesn't function as well at local and level. And, 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 and some of the factionalism yeah. that Brian has yeah. talked about, that only becomes worse because into mm. a vacuum comes this factionalism between local personalities, between the AOH, between the UIL. And you have this breakdown of the kind of unity within the organisation. Just to add to that though, um, that in spite of all that, in spite of the breakdown of the party's own uh, convention system and local organisation, um, in the uh, 20 months between August 1914 and April 1916, which was, yeah, 20 months, there were seven by-elections. There was no general election, but there were seven by-elections. Every one of those was won by uh, candidates who called themselves Redmondite or home rule candidates. There might have been two or three candidates on the tick, on, you know, um, uh, competing against each other, but there was no ideological difference between them. There was one by-election in Dublin where there was uh, an ideological difference, where there was a, a Labour candidate, but he and he got a respectable percentage of the vote, 40% or something, but he didn't win. They, uh, home rule candidates were still winning by-elections right up to the rising. So, it, you know, that says something in spite of all the discontent that there was that, at the prolongation of the war, uh, the unease over the future of home rule, you know, uh, over the f uh, future partition and so on. It's still, the bottom line was that the, uh, there was no political alternative to home rule. Yeah, do you want somebody from the audience there? Yeah, hold on a second, we have a microphone here. This is, uh, this is being recorded, by the way, so um, uh, nothing libelous. The, the that by which the Tories opposed the Irish home rule movement and anything, was that really down to the Parliament Act? Did they blame the Irish nationalists for promoting the Parliament Act and actually getting it through, because that detailed the, the, the House of Lords. That would have been a factor in the Tory uh, attitude, all right. It was, a, it was a residue of the Tory diehards who had opposed yeah. the uh, Parliament Act. I mean, proposed treason. Uh, pardon? They were, probably, they were proposing treason. Some well, you can argue that. Yeah, but you see, the, 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 the Conservative view would be, not unlike the present situation, the DUP, uh, in Westminster that this uh, had all come about simply because of, the, uh, of an accident of electoral arithmetic, you know, that, they, yeah, the, yeah. that the Irish Parliamentary Party held the balance of power. But they didn't recognise that as legitimate yeah. politics. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know it's for different causes, for the budget that they brought, that the Liberals wanted the, 
the 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 the, the department act brought in to so get through the, the the famous budget of Lloyd George. But the Irish nationalists were stigmatised it, and I just wonder what that did that promote the vitriol by which the high Tories opposed Home Rule, which was really extraordinary. Uh, yeah, but it, we have to qualify that as well, because when the Tories, the Tory, uh, the Tory attitude changed in late 1913. Uh, by, by late 1913, the Home Rule Bill had gone through twice. And by then, anyone who was against, like they, the Tories and Carson and the Ulster Unions had all been opposing it in toto before that. And they, they were simply out to destroy the Home Rule Bill. Both sides were playing the game for the, for the entire island. From late 1913, now, I, admittedly, a lot of this went on behind the scenes. The public didn't get to know about it. But from late 1913, the Tories realised there's no way of stopping this Home Rule Bill. It's going to become law next year because it only has to go one more time through the House of Commons. They, and the Ulster Unions began to accept that. Carson began to accept it. There were a lot of discussions behind the scenes between Bonner Law, Carson and Asquith. And that's when they began to uh, put forward this idea. We will give uh, a home rule for nationalist Ireland a fair wind. We'll accept a settlement on that basis if you, uh, you agree to exclude from it a certain portion of Ulster, which will, will later be agreed upon, but uh, at least six counties or that kind of thing. So there, and that's when compromise, uh, that's when partition began to, uh, if you like, emerge from the mist. Nobody had wanted partition before that, but it began to come out because there was simply nobody could see an alternative, short of civil war. Um, can, uh, I'm no expert on Redmond, but uh, I'm a native of Wexford Town, and as a, a boy, I played around uh, the mausoleum, if that's the word, in John's Gate Street, where he's buried and where the Redmond family are buried. But I just wanted to comment on how they're perceived, because I agree with the gentleman on my right here that uh, Redmond as he's remembered in Wexford is certainly not John Bruton's Redmond. Uh, he's remembered more as a nationalist and not somebody that sold the past, so to speak. Um, for instance, it's recorded or remembered that he very often, not very often, but sometimes expressed pride in his ancestry who had fought in 98, not just the lady on the horse, but others. Uh, there's a plaque outside the house in Ballytrent, as far as I recall, uh, indicating that the owner at the time was a member of the Council of the United Men. And uh, in Wexford Town, apart from the uh, uh, memorial in Redmond Square, there's also the main public park, which is the Redmond Park, in which there's a bronze of Willie Redmond. So he's remembered quite well down there in, in that uh, respect. And it also might, might be known, certainly, that uh, uh, it has been recorded as well, that uh, research into the name Redmond, uh, you, it might be normally accepted that it sounds an English, an old English or a Norman, perhaps, that most of the Redmonds, which is a Wexford name, MacRaymond, are descended from uh, one of the MacMurras, uh, from Raymond MacMurra of Courtown, Ardemine area in the 13th century, uh, that the MacRaymonds in general seem to be of old Gaelic stock, which mightn't seem uh, important, but uh, to where it was known, it would have been important. Mm. So I think the, um, 
way he's remembered, certainly down in his own native area, might be a little bit different than uh, he's perceived uh, some other places generally. Martin, you want to comment on that? Yeah, well, the way he's remembered in Wexford is interesting because Wexford becomes really the hub of most memorialisation and commemoration of John Redmond. So in the 1920s, in 1923, 24, 25, there's big commemorations of Redmond. And 1924, 1925 are national commemorations attracting approximately 20,000 people, but they're held in Wexford town. So you have parades through the town and you have speeches at both the mausoleum and in Redmond Square. And in 1924, John Dillon gives a narration where he really defends Redmond's memory and he says that his imperialism is faint as far as he could see in comparison to the imperialism of the Cumann Gael government. And he really sets up this defence of Redmond based on the fact that he got home rule on the statute books, he got further than Isaac Butt or, or Parnell ever did. So there was a real defence of Redmond, which really goes on through the 1920s up until the, fact, the time when his son founds the National League Party. And after that then, Captain Redmond, John Redmond's son, joins Cumann Gael and at that point then, going into the 1930s, you see a kind of a breakaway between how the Irish party of Redmond is remembered and the Irish party of Parnell is remembered. And what's interesting is that the Irish party of Parnell seems to retain the strident edge, the physical force element, whereas Redmond's party is seen then very much in terms of being imperialist, in terms of being outsmarted by the British. So in the 1930s and into the 1940s, the Irish press covers Parnell commemorations quite well. It has articles on Ivy Day by Captain Harrington, and yet, when Captain Redmond dies, the Irish press says that Redmond disappointed all the hopes of advanced nationalists. So then, at commemorations in the 40s, de Valera speaks at commemorations to Parnell and Davitt, and he talks about how the volunteers worked on the shoulders of the Land League generation. But Redmond's party seems to be kind of omitted at that point. But in the early years, certainly, he was well remembered, and Wexford was the hub of these events. So it is interesting that the local memory would have him having that more nationalist or strident edge when the memorialisation and the public debates in the Free State and into the 30s and 40s tended to separate out the early Irish party and the latter Irish party, because Redmond is remembered in opposition to the rising, whereas Parnell and the early party and the land war generation is kind of subsumed into a narrative that reaches its conclusion from 1916 to 21. Now, uh, yeah, just get the mic there. Just a point of information, a curious point. I'm from Wexford myself as well, you know. Wexford Town, except for a brief period in the 1980s when Seamus Colmore won a seat for a couple of years, never, has never produced a Fianna Fáil TD or indeed a Fianna Gael TD, you know. It's been completely... Um, all the TDs were representative of the Labour Party. And even the Labour Party in Wexford would still have always had, in my opinion, a strong Redmondite streak through it, you know? Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. And Richard Corrish attends the Redmondite commemorations in the 20s as well. Could it be, though, that, that Redmond, that it's a kind of a plague in everyone else's house? Like, I was going to ask you, what's driving this thing in the 20s and 30s? Like, that, you, you know, given the civil war, the, the, the economic situation, you know, it's kind of anybody but the respective Sinn Féin's pro or anti-treaty, you know. Yeah, there was one uh, American political writer at the time said that Redmond Sons' party, the National League, was a collection of malcontents that didn't represent anything distinctive in the political culture, that effectively they were just anyone but the Civil War parties. But at the same time, I think it's important to remember that there's, over, there's about 220,000 approximate people vote for the Irish party in 1918. So even if we take into account an electoral pact in Ulster, there is a residue of support, and it's particularly strong in Ulster with the AOH, but also in the southeast, in Waterford and Wexford. And the Irish Party comes relatively close to winning seats in Louth and in Wexford in 1918. So there is a residue of support there. And 
the Redmondite anniversaries in many ways in the 20s kind of give the impetus to Captain Redmond to set up this party. But it's a party that doesn't succeed because it doesn't carve out its niche. It's anti the government, it's also, but still it's pro-treaty. And a lot of its rhetoric is mostly concerned with saying that the coming away government is too much of a spendthrift government, which is certainly not how it's remembered now. And also criticising partition, which as Dermot says, John Redmond in many ways was one of the first Irish leaders to have to face the reality of Ulster Unionist opposition. But his son and the other former MPs that coalesce around the National League in the 20s don't offer concrete measures that would alleviate partition either. They don't offer a radical solution that would solve the question any more than the Free State Government or that the anti-treaty... Well, what about the, the Farmers' Party that existed in the, in the 1920s? Uh, was it Redmondite in any way? It wasn't explicitly Redmondite. It was an amalgam of different political loyalties. It had its origins in the Irish Farmers' Union, um, which existed during the First World War. So it did have some TDs that would have been former councillors and former nominally home rule or nationalist councillors. But it also had people from the Sinn Féin background. And it also had uh, Southern Unionists as well. So the Farmers' Party, and this is one of the issues with the party, it was objectively a Farmers' Party that encompassed different political traditions. So any Redmondite element was coincidental, you're saying, basically? Well, it wasn't coincidental in the sense that land had been so central to politics before independence. Mm. So some of the people who found themselves in the Farmers' Party would have been farmers that would have done well out of land legislation. Mm. Yeah. And the National League tried to amalgamate with the Farmers' Party in the 20s, but doesn't succeed. But Cumann and Gwail tried also and did a bit better at amalgamating the Farmers' Party tradition. Mm. Um, I, maybe I'm wrong on this, but was he offered a seat in the war cabinet? I'm just wondering how much that affected his career, that he didn't take up that position. Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, he was, uh, the answer is yes, he was offered a seat in the cabinet. And um, that was in May 1915 when the war was going badly for the British and Asquith was under a lot of pressure from the uh, Northbrook newspaper uh, group, Daily Mail and the Times and so on. And so he decided to bring, uh, you know, um, to create a national government, bring Tories into his cabinet. That meant that Carson was brought into the government as Attorney General. And that was a big blow to the morale of a lot of Irish nationalists because they thought, you know, here's our bitterest enemy now in the government and you know what next will they you know there was a fear then that the fear grew that they would bring in conscription because conscription was being uh, talked about for the first time in the in the british newspapers and then a long a more long-term fear was you know maybe if they um, they might even repeal home rule if, if they last long enough you know so there was that fear now against that Asquith did offer redmond a place in, in the cabinet and it's a subject for um, debate really. I mean, they, you know, you could argue either way. I, um, I uh, personally think he should have taken the seat, but I mean, I, I recognise there were huge factors against it. Like uh, uh, the whole tradition of the Nationalist Party was not to take any employment or um, paid employment from the British. Uh, you know, um, you can argue against that, that, you know, you were now in a new situation. Ho the Home Rule Act was on the statute book. Ireland was now scheduled to get its parliament, so the old rules shouldn't apply anymore. And uh, did he get the worst of both worlds? He, was, uh, he, had, he lost, uh, you know, political influence um, in the uh, conditions of the war, and he got criticised at home for things that happened over which he had no power. So he had influence with, uh, you know, he had responsibility without power. Would it have been better to have responsibility uh, and power for the negative things? I don't know. It's one of Brian, yeah? It could have been. 
Would it have been political suicide at home? To kind of oh, take up that I don't know. At that early stage, no, I don't think it would have been. Brian, you want to come in there? A, a yeah. lot of things. No, sorry, I'll let yeah. Brian go on. No, I mean, I think the, the question of the war is crucial. I mean, the Irish nationalist support for the war was always conditional. And even initially in August, September, October 1918, when, when Red, or 1914, when Redmond does call for nationalist support, it's always predicated on the fact that it has to be voluntary, so there's absolutely no conscription, and all the Home Rule Party are agreed, we will not tolerate any forced conscription. By mid-1915, Britain is in, in trouble in terms of manpower, they're already talking about conscription. The losses are huge, um, there doesn't seem to be a return for them, and the party is already suffering. I mean, in part, they win these by-elections because there isn't an organised political opposition at that point. But you can see on the ground declining recruitment, more and more criticism of the war, people like the Bishop of Limerick coming out and saying, why should Irish men fight for England? What has England ever done for us? Even Cardinal Logue, who's very sceptical of separatists, nevertheless saying that, you know, England has given us nothing except taking our industries, and now they want our men as well. Um, you have the increasingly on-the-ground radicalisation and distrust of the war effort. Then you have some Home Rule MPs who try to say, well, this war may be terrible, but it's important for the Irish volunteers. I mean, John Dillon tells a Belfast audience that when this war is over, whoever has done the best on the field of France will be equipped for the, the fight at home. In other words, we need battle-hardened men because we're going to be fighting the Ulster volunteers in a year's time or two years' time. You know? So it's you know, potentially a, a civil war he's talking about at the end of the war. On the other hand, then, you have Redmond trying to still... And I, I think it's important because even though nobody here, we're obviously all far too sophisticated to come up with this, but Redmond is still described popularly. I remember last year, or the year before, in one of the documentaries, Bob Geldof talking about, you know, this man of peace and all the rest. John Redmond isn't in favour of non-violence. John Redmond doesn't believe in, you know... I mean, he's not only supporting the war. Even in 19, late 1915, when it's quite clear that the war is resulting in carnage, he goes to France, he visits Irish regiments, and he contributes to, you know to a book and to arguments saying that the rec recruitment needs to go on, that war is terrible, but it often brings out the best in men. He uses rhetoric about, you know, the sacrifice of blood and all the rest, which, if used by Parik Pierce, would be held up as, you know, this irrational type of, of language, in fact, when it was common to almost everybody at the time. And even while he's there, he gets, you know, the chance to fire some artillery at the Germans. And he, he writes about this and he says, you know, it was very difficult, but I can only hope my, my shot went home. Now, again, you know, it's a cheap shot and a terrible pun. To, to, to say that now, but John Redmond might have killed some Germans while he was at the front, you know, and, and this is a reality which more and more people in Ireland are disillusioned by. They see we're not getting a return for this huge loss of life, and the people who've all along been saying we shouldn't be involved in it at all are beginning to look more attractive, even before the Easter Rising, I'd argue. Well, I mean, this brings in conscription, right? I mean, that, that was that was the, the final nail in the coffin, really, uh, Dermot, I mean, for, for, for Redmond, because... No, uh, conscription was not... Uh, I mean, it uh, was not a nail in the cup for Redmond because conscription uh, was... Ne uh, Redmond continually warned the British cabinet right up to the end of his life that, you know, uh, introducing conscription will be a disaster. And they didn't do it. They talked about it and the press called for it, but they didn't do it. Uh, it was April 1918, a month after Redmond's death, was the first uh, time when the, uh, you know, um, when the legislation came into Parliament to actually enact conscription for the two islands. And so it was John Dillon who had to fight that battle. John Dillon formed the United Front with Sinn Féin in 1918 to fight the conscription threat. And by June, 
the British dropped the conscription threat, for, or it was certainly it was kind of woolly when exactly they uh, called off the idea, but it the idea faded out of consciousness by the autumn of 1918. And there was even a big revival, or a, a kind of a late flowering revival of recruiting in Ireland in the autumn of 1918. Guys who felt that they'd missed out on the action were joining up in from August on, once the conscription threat had gone away. So it's uh, we're talking about after Redmond's death was when conscription actually threatened Ireland. I suppose the... When, when, when Redmond was offered a position in the British cabinet, he's given minister without portfolio. Yeah. It was totally powerless. It's sitting in the corner and speaking when you're spoken to more or less ministry. You don't have any real power because you don't have a department of state under you. Well, it would have been the up... Second, the second Sorry. thing is that when Redmond during the war, when they tried to get cap badges for the Irish regiments, no, he did in the end, but it, no, he had to fight on those issues, the, yeah. the cap badge, the insignia, and yeah. so on. He fought, he had to fight with Lord Kitchener, who was running the yeah. war office. Yeah. And uh, they were difficult battles, but he, he had to do a lot of lobbying, and he won through in the end on those. He got the cap badge. The other thing is, conscription is an important issue before 1918 as well, yeah. albeit Redmond manages to make sure that conscription doesn't come in. But in the early part of the war, there's conscription fears going through the countryside, particularly rural Ireland where farmers are doing well. And it creates a lot of unrest and disquiet. And Redmond writes to John Dillon asking what's the situation in the west of Ireland? Because these conscription fears would cause a great degree of panic and obviously disillusionment with the war effort. So conscription was always going to be a red button issue if yeah. it ever came to pass. Even Alfie Byrne, who's one of the newer MPs, is, is upset when conscription's been brought into mainland Britain because he's concerned about the Irish in Britain. So it was always going to be a red button issue and it just, it was 1918 before the British finally moved to say that they're going to introduce it to Ireland. Maybe if I, if I should have rephrased my, my earlier question to you, uh, Dermot, I wasn't so, so much talking about Redmond, but the, the Redmond project, you know, the, 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 the parliamentary party project, because the, presumably Redmond recognised this because if, if conscription came in, even if the Redmondites, like his, his followers, his author's death, oppose it, which they did consistently, yeah. they would still be blamed for it in the popular, the court of popular opinion. Yeah, because oh. they would draw from Westminster in protest. Mm. And people yeah. like Thomas London, who's the Limerick Home Rule MP, says things like, it's better to die on their own doorstep than the plains of France and Belgium on behalf of a gang of traitors and hypocrites. I mean, this is Sinn Féin rhetoric. But the problem is, is that the Home Rule Party leaves Westminster and all Sinn Féin is say, Sinn Féin says is, we said never to go there in the first place. Mm. So again, I mean, th their opposition to conscription is said by, you know, is seen as coming too late. Even if it is consistent, Sinn Féin can say and radicals can say, we all along opposed the war. We'd never have lost a single Irishman if you'd listened to us. So the Home Rule Party are an important part of this coalition against conscription. And it isn't just that the British kind of give up. They're forced to give up. I mean, imposing conscription on Ireland would have led to war in 1918. And even if the Irish side, the Irish volunteers and so on, were very badly equipped, the British simply did not want to fight a war in Ireland in 1918 when the war in France was going badly. I mean, again, it's March, yeah. centenary yeah. of that. The German offensive almost pushes the Allies back to the gates of Paris, which is why they're talking about conscription in the first place. So I think the, the Home Rule Party's radicalism on conscription, they're leaving Westminster, just makes Sinn Féin look better to the average person because they... They, after all, came up with the idea first. Oh. Could I just uh, raise two points just to ask your view on them? 
Uh, one is, uh, it's, it's much easier to go into a war than, than, to, uh, than to get out of a war. And having you know, said to the Irish people recommended joining and seeing the 16th Irish Division uh, formed, and indeed the 10th Irish Division and the 36th, Redmond, these, these divisions were running out of men. And Redmond couldn't but continue having committed to that. He couldn't betray the people who were, if you will, who were in these divisions, uh, which were running out of fighting capacity. He couldn't betray them, the people who had gone and who had died and so on, by changing. It was impossible, really, for him in honour to, to change his tune on that one because he would have been letting down these people. We might say that he should never have argued you know, that they should join up in the first place. I'll come back to that in a minute. But once they were committed to the war, he had to keep encouraging recruiting in Ireland. He had to in honour. Uh, the second, the second issue, issue is he and Willie Redmond, as far as I uh, can recall, uh, both made the point strongly that their involvement in the war was necessary because they couldn't, you know, it was necessary because Ulster was getting involved in the war. And if they, if they wanted to have, and they still believed in having a, 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 unit, a, un, a unified Ireland, they couldn't let that chasm open up where Ulster went to the war, but, but the rest of the nationalist Ireland didn't go to the war. And this was a motive. And a, 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 they said at the time, and I just wonder what the panel think about this, this was a motive for, uh, for the Redmonds to, uh, and indeed the Irish Parliamentary Party under the leadership of John Redmond, to encourage uh, people to go to the war. Yes, but we must keep in, uh, keep in mind all the time what that strategy was rooted in, it was rooted in home rule. The, the strategy decided on in 1914, um, you know, as you say, he couldn't depart from that strategy at any point later, no matter how long the war went on. He had to stick to it. You know. uh, um, can I just read a short extract from a letter here? This is from Redmond to Asquith in 15th of November 1915, just before he goes off to visit the front. He says, I've been in a state of great anxiety for some time on the question of a possible conscription bill. I'll skip through it here. He says, I must tell you that the enforcement of conscription in Ireland is an impossibility. Faced with this dilemma, if, it's, um, if a conscription bill be introduced, the Irish party will be forced to oppose it as vigorously as possible at every stage. And that's in 1915. Now, 18 months later, Lloyd George is now prime minister. Redmond is in the last year of his life. T.P. O'Connor is reporting back a conversation that he's had with Lloyd George. Now, bear in mind, this is after the enormous losses of 1916 at the front, um, at the Western Front, um, January 1917. And he says, uh, Lloyd George seemed a good deal worried by the question of conscription in Ireland. Evidently, a strong campaign is going on behind the scenes with regard to it in the hope of forcing his hand. So he's talking there about British, uh, the British press forcing Lloyd George's hand. He says, I pointed out to him the impossibility of enforcing conscription on Ireland. But he said that in the present temper of the English people, with so many of them sending their sons to the war and losing them, those perils might be faced. And um, when I objected that conscription in Ireland might mean the loss of 100 lives, and in that way, the loss of the war through the hostility of America and some of the allies, he said the English people who were sending their own sons to the war would not care if it were 10,000. Now, that was a Lloyd George talking to 
uh, one of Redmond's colleagues. Now, any more questions from the from the audience here? I just want to, if there isn't, I just want to move on. Yeah. One brief question. Um, up about ten or fifteen years ago, there was a fellow in Wexford Town. He was a printer in the Wexford People. And at the end of the night, on a Saturday night, with a few drinks on him in the bar, he'd shout up, I'm the last Redmondite in Wexford. And he probably was. The question is, what was the attraction of working class people like him to support John Redmond? They would appear to have so little in common. Now, how was, same in Watford and Wexford. The working class appeared to have strong support for Redmond. Well, the, the Redmondite, the Home Rule Party, first of all, had strong links with the skilled trades. So, again, you have this big division in, in, in the trade unions in the early 1900s between the skilled men and the unskilled. And many of the skilled trade unions had links with the Irish party through land and labour associations and through trade councils and so on. The Irish party had also, of course, you know, labourers, cottages, the end of the mud huts and so on. They had brought in reforms. And in Britain, a lot of the time, they were regarded as allies of the democracy. The democracy was the, the labour movement. So in Britain, they tended to vote with the labour movement on legislation. So there was a working class Redmondite support. And you're right, of course, that that survived to some extent post-Redmond as well in, in, in places um, like Wexford. And you can also see an element of working class support in the people who come out and fight for the Home Rule Party in 1918, literally fight for it. You know, the people in, 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 all, in urban areas who, who continue to, to support the party. So I think there's a variety of reasons for that and family tradition and support. Some links with the British military, I don't believe that's the full explanation. It's the way Republicans saw it, but I don't think that's... Could it be the point I made no. that they aren't the other shower? Do you know what I mean? In other words, like, that the Redmondite isn't commoning ale or anti-treaty Sinn Féin, you know. Uh, there's also, you know. I suppose there's also a residue that Parnellite support seemed to be stronger among working-class people as well, so there's possibly yeah. a bit of a legacy there too. But, but the Irish Party was this broad coalition, was the green umbrella, Conor Mulva called it, so it did encompass these different elements. And they did have some... MPs, a relatively small number, that call themselves Labour nationalists, like J.P. Nanetti and William Field. So they did feel that they were this kind of national party that could encompass all these different elements. Now, if you were to talk to, like, Sir Jim Larkin and James Connolly, they wouldn't see very much of a Labour nationalist element to the Irish party at the same time. Uh, could I just say that uh, I think one of the reasons might have been that Wexford was highly industrialised with three big uh, uh, farm machinery plants, and there were about a thousand men involved. And they had the incident of the lockout before Dublin for seven or eight months yeah. Yeah. with eight or nine hundred men locked out. And Larkin was involved and uh, Dick Corish was involved. He was the leader of it, in fact, Brendan Corish's father. And I think that formed uh, political opinion to a very great extent in Wexford Town, certainly, uh, and certainly uh, formed their association with, with Labour and that at the time. Now, I just... <laughs> tell you what, I want to just go on to the final question, which I, I, I touched on in my introduction, um, because this seems to be the, uh, the, the, the kernel of, say, the, the, the John Bruton argument, which is that the treaty settlement that we actually got in 1921 was home rule for slow learners. Um, what do you think, Martin? Well, in legal terms, at least, there's a clear evolution between home rule and the treaty settlement. And I think it's influenced by events in Ireland and events further afield. So in the aftermath of the rising, you have this attempt to introduce some form of home rule in 1916, which runs aground on the issue 
of whether his partition temporary, is it going to be permanent, and ultimately Walter Long and others torpedo the settlement in any case. But there's a letter in the Dillon Papers from an MP, Daniel O'Leary, who's only elected quite recently during the war in Cork, and he's talking about the need to rejuvenate the party, and he's calling for the party to strike out in favour of Dominion Home Rule. So he's praising, I suppose, the enthusiasm of the rising, uh, of those who took part in the rising, but he's talking about Dominion Home Rule. He's talking about something on the lines of the other dominions. Whereas at the same time, dominion status is evolving at the time because um, the legal scholar Thomas More talks about the Imperial War Conference in 1917 and the importance of this, where dominions are then known as autonomous nations. So you have these home rulers who have this vague demand for dominion home rule, which in legal terms is quite vague, what is dominion home rule? But they're positing home rule as something equivalent to dominion status, even in 1917, 1918. And by the time of 1918, the Sinn Féin newspaper is talking about dominion home rule as very close to real independence, but England probably won't concede it. So there is an evolution going on, and it's influenced also by events in America and the coming of President Wilson and his talk of self-determination for nations. So there's a lot of talk about sovereignty and independence, and there's an, evol there's an evolution going on from 1917 to 1918, and it's not just Sinn Féin MPs or Sinn Féin activists, there's backbenchers in the Irish party looking at something more than what the Home Rule Act would have given, and they're also looking at President Wilson and what he might be able to give to Ireland. So is it, is with the treaty, we do get dominion status. So it is, it's, it's a clear, in legal and constitutional terms, upgrade on home rule. But Martin, what, but the point is, though, this, um, let's look at Wilson's self-determination, right? I mean, the British interpretation of that at the time of the Versailles Treaty negotiations was, we're going to give self-determination to the dominions. Not Ireland, of course. Ireland mm -hmm. didn't, didn't get a seat at the table. In other words, they were trying to come up with the fiction that that self-determination of the British Empire meant granting dominion status, you know, to the, to the white dominions, you know, Canada, South Africa, uh, Australia, whatever, you know. So in, in a sense then, there's, there's, uh, that, that, that's an attempt to square the circle between uh, um, uh, Wilson proposing this idea of self-determination, which apparently only applied to the losing empires, didn't mm. apply to the, the, the winning side, which it didn't yeah. apply to us, you know. And the Freeman's so, Journal says that. The Freeman's Journal says... Sinn Féin are on the losing side. They're not going to get heard at the peace yeah. conference. Government so they, they make this argument, yeah. the Irish party is the one who should lead the delegation to the mm. peace conference because Sinn Féin won't get a hearing because they picked the wrong horse in the race kind of mm. idea. So that, mm. the Freeman's Journal uses that argument. The whole, the, 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 the whole concept of you know, what, you know, what would be Dominion status in 1918 is very woolly and nebulous. It, it's not as clear as what it later became. I mean, you know, in the treaty, it was obvious that Ireland would have its own foreign service and would have its own army. Uh, but th those were not the two most, pr in the ideas about um, Dominion Home Rule before 1918, th those were not the, the two most prominent things talked about. It was mainly about fiscal control. You know, would you control your own customs as well as excise? And that's, and that's where the Home Rule Bill was limited to a certain extent, the, uh, the earlier Home Rule Bill. But uh, when, in 1917, Lloyd George is offering Home Rule to Redmond, subject to partition of six counties. And he's also saying um, that the finances of the 1914 Act are now obsolete. The war has made them obsolete, and they will have to be uh, looked at again. So what you've got there is uh, not, it's not explicitly, um, um, talk, it's not explicit talk about um, dominion status, but in effect, he's, he's 
opening the door to discussion of that. Most of the, re of, of the pro-Redmond papers in 1917, the, uh, those newspapers, local and national, who, with, that stayed loyal to the Irish party up to the end, um, are all, they've all adopted dominion status as their um, demand. And uh, the, the real um, sticking point to me, to my, like in my view, the, the reason why so many nationalists abandoned the Irish party in 1917 and 1918, and, what, and above all, 32 MPs decided that they would not contest their seats again against Sinn Féin. That speaks of total demoralisation, and the reason for that was that uh, they were now being offered home rule, but they were refusing it. They were being offered home rule but they were refusing it on the only terms on which it was available, which was partition. No, especially after the Somme, no British government would dream of coercing Unionist Ulster into Home Rule. So it simply wasn't, you know, a United Ireland Home Rule was simply not on the table. And I think nationalists were only beginning to really uh, take this, absorb this reality in 1917, and that's when the Irish party begins to lose by-elections, and that's when these, uh, later on then in 1918, when the Irish party MPs simply throw in the towel, and all these nationalists then, and, uh, but as Martin has said, 220,000 of them still stuck around to vote for the Irish party in late 1918. Actually, my question wasn't about dominion status. Uh, my question was about home rule, right? But, that was an interesting side. So, Brian, I, that's, that's, I, I'll pitch you that question, the last, last contribution. You know. the, the, the most, you see, the problem was that Ireland wasn't Australia or New Zealand or Canada. It wasn't a settler state where the majority of people identified with the mother country. The majority of Irish nationalists, a quarter of the population were unionist. And that is something still that has to be taken into account up to the present day. And in the United Ireland in 1921, a quarter of the population would have been unionist. And a lot of people... Still don't think about that, if you know what I mean. Mm. But 75% of the population saw Ireland essentially as a place that had been conquered, that had been coerced into an act of union and an empire which it did not want to belong to. And it only belonged to that ultimately because there were 25, 30,000 British troops in Ireland at all times. Under, in this barracks and elsewhere, every decent-sized Irish, decent Irish town had a British army barracks in it, right? Now that is the physical symbol of British rule, never mind fiscal autonomy and all the rest of it. They wouldn't have left under Home Rule. There would have been no potential for a neutral Home Rule Ireland because the British military would have been here in occupation. They left in 1921. And that is, you know, whatever you think about either side of the treaty debates, when people like Griffith and O'Duffy and the rest of them talk about, we have brought about the withdrawal of British forces for, from Ireland for the first time in 800 years or whatever, that is the physical reality of independence that wouldn't have changed under Home Rule. And if the British military are here, then that makes your self-government very, very limited indeed. And it certainly makes things like neutrality impossible. And that again was something that after the First World War, I think was an important part of how Ireland saw itself as becoming independent of a great power. So I think there is a big, big difference between Home Rule and what was achieved in 1921. I'm going to leave Brian the last word on that. Uh, I'm going to bring matters to a close. Um, I'd like to thank uh, um, my panel here, uh, Martha Donoghue, uh, Dermot Bleedy, uh, Brian Hanley, uh, and you, the audience, particularly those people who made contributions from the, the floor. Um, now, we're, we have a busy week this week for, for hedge schools. Uh, this, is, this is Wednesday. This must be at loan. Uh, Friday, it's Kilkenny. We're going to be looking at the relationship between uh, history and uh, archaeology. And then on Sunday, 
uh, we're up to Belfast with a discussion on the end of the First World War and the new world order. And then I will be uh, heading straight back to Dublin for a, an episode of, the, uh, of Talking History. We'll be looking at uh, the period between 1916 and 1918, and this will be from contributors to the, the History Ireland uh, supplement on that, which is for sale over there, combined price, along with the current issue of uh, History Ireland, uh, for only 15 euros. Uh, in fact, no, I won't be heading back to Dublin. It was pre-recorded, I can give you that. We'll be, we'll be uh, speaking as if we are live, but in fact, it was pre-recorded a while ago. It's a great show, I can guarantee you that. <laughs> but uh, I hope to see you back uh, at some future uh, History Ireland Head School. We'll be coming back to the uh, topic related to this in April in Liberty Hall. We'll be having Head School on the whole conscription crisis. So I uh, might see some of you there. Thank you very much. <laughs>